0: Well, good uh, morning, men. It's still morning, so I'm going to use that greeting. Well, this is really a friendly crowd. Nobody says, okay. Well, anyway, it's great to see you, nonetheless. Uh, We're in the uh, middle of what is perhaps one of the more... um, Important parts of the Book of First Corinthians. I mean, maybe I shouldn't put it that way, but because it, it, every part is important. But on the board, I, I think I did something like this earlier. <coughs> uh, actually, I'm thinking that may have been when we were over in the lodge. Uh, but nonetheless, um, it's a, it's a review, so to speak, of how I think these three chapters fit together. If you can uh, go back a number of weeks when we began chapter 12, uh, if you remember verse 1 starts, now concerning, and then the word is spiritual, and the editors often insert gifts, although it really isn't there, and uh, there are reasons why they do that which aren't important really at all for our study. I believe a better way to really understand the larger theme of these three chapters is, is the matter of spirituality, and, and even, in a sense, I should maybe put uh, quotation marks around this, because that's actually the word. And spirituality is, um, I would probably guess, even today, is kind of a really important issue. It's, putting it another way, what does it mean to be spiritual? What are the characteristics of Spirituality. Because it's one of those words, it's one of those terms, there's kind of a, you know, almost like a mystery to it. It's, it's like, oh, it's such a great holy term, it sounds good, it sounds righteous, but when you start to talk about it, really nobody knows how to talk about it. Nobody knows really what it means. It's just one of those terms that you you kind of grasp and, and, and say that is good, but I'm not sure I know what it means. It would seem too, and I think we talked about this as well, it would seem too that the Corinthians, which was very understandable when you realize they're Greco-Roman people, the Corinthians kind of thought in spirituality somewhat the way in which um, the Greco-Roman world thought about it. It was only an elite few ever really would reach that plane of spirituality. Only an elite few could you really call spiritual. They the uh, pagan priests in their temples, they were the ones who... Uh, engaged in all of the exercises that were part of pagan and worship, but I'm not spiritual. And Paul is dealing with a group of people who are thinking that way, so they're saying, hmm, probably the people that are most spiritual are the people who are exercising the prominent, flashy evidences of spirituality. The gift. Now, I'm not picking on this one because it's somewhat even controversial here today in the 21st century, but it must have been a big issue to them because he writes so much about it, speaking in tongues. There were a lot of people doing that. And so the conclusion was well, he can speak in tongues. I can't, but he's, he's obviously more spiritual than I am. Because he's got that flashy, prominent gift, and I don't know how to do it, I don't know where it comes from, but he has it. And so it, it was creating that kind of sentiment and, and sense that spirituality is marked by prominence flashy, demonstrable times, kinds of exercises. But you know, only a really small group of people ever get there. And Paul really corrects that. And if you remember, at the very beginning of chapter 12, he says it begins with a simple confession. I don't know if you remember what that is, but it's Jesus is Lord. The beginning of spirituality is not emotion. The beginning of spirituality is is, is not an ecstatic response. It's doctrine. It's theology. It's a set of doctrinal convictions that center on Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And then he starts to talk about the gifts, but makes it very, very clear that everybody has a gift. And everybody has a responsibility to exercise that gift. For the edification of everybody in the body. Verse 7 of chapter 12. So not just an elite few get it. Everybody it, And they are to function for the benefit of the body. Whoa, that would have been a significant corrective. And then we're going to get here. We're going to be probably in summer. But in chapter 14, he talks about one of the marks of spirituality in the worship service is order. And a very important verse in the middle of chapter 14, God is not the author of chaos. But sandwiched in between these two discussions is this remarkable chapter which we're about to begin. And it would seem to me, I mean just correctly, just in the way in which it's laid out, that this is the key. This is the apex, the mark, the indistinguishable evidence of spirituality. It's love. Now, I just did kind of a little overview, plus I did a little bit of a review. I want to make sure everybody's with me. Because if you're not with me, then what we're about to do with chapter 13 isn't going to make sense. I don't want you to isolate chapter 13. I don't want you to just pull it out, and we can. I mean, we often do. But you have to see why it's sandwiched in between 12 and 14 it seems to me to be very important Um, Woody
1: I previewed that chapter two or three times discussed it with my wife even good a little confused about um, but um, you could have all these gifts or any of the gifts but not have love and I just frankly didn't know if that meant I wouldn't like if if you didn't have the love of Christ or the love of others, I couldn't really figure that out. Which way, that Woody? Going.
0: You can't separate those two. I know
1: you're going to get there. Today. You can't. Yeah,
0: you can't separate those two. What you're saying?
1: I'm excited about it.
0: Love for God and love for let's use this analogy. Love in the New Testament is like a coin. You know, it's always analogies always break down, but if you can follow me. One side of the coin is love for God, the other side of the coin is love for people. You cannot separate the two. As a matter of fact, I I teach ethics, as you may know, but anyway, I think, and and that's one of the the, the things I do with it, I think that is one of the key elements of an ethical view of life. Um, Jesus said, when he was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment of the ten? Remember, I don't know if you remember that. The Pharisees tried to trap him. And he didn't answer the question. What he did is he said, well, it's very simple. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. They're linked. You can't separate them. But that also helps us to understand that, because then he adds in the next verse, on this hangs the entire law. And the Greek word is there. It's actually suspended from. If you can kind of picture that that the whole law suspended from this. And then, and the, and the more you study these, oh my goodness, I really understand what he's saying. Because the first four commandments are how you love God. The last six commandments are how you love people. And so, I mean, you can see how integrated and connected the scriptures are. I mean, it's, the New, New Testament isn't disconnected from the Old Testament. It's just a fulfillment of. And so the word, the word for love here, I'm going to write it up here so it'll be a little higher than if I get way down at the bottom. I suspect you know this, but just in case you don't, the word for love here is agape. And I, I don't ask you to think very often about Greek words, but this is one of those that you probably should, because there were three major Greek words for love. All three of them are in the New Testament this very rarely, but this one and this one are all over the place. Eros, now if you look at that you can see that, we get our word erotic from that. Eros is romantic love. It's sexual love. Phileo is the love of a friend, of a neighbor. If you can look at that, you can tell, oh, that's Philadelphia. Philadelphia is literally the love of brother, brotherly love. The city of brotherly love is sometimes called. Agape, unlike this one and this one, agape is extremely difficult to, to, to translate. Because to translate it, love, it is translated love, but to capture it, but to say what's well, love, Ugh. you have to have a much deeper understanding of what's going on here. This is the word agape that is used of Jesus. Of Jesus dying on the cross. It's his self sacrificial. Uh, emptying himself kind of love. I define it in this way. An other-centered love. Now that's awkward. We don't talk like that but normally. But I, I, I use other-centered love because it is the opposite of self-centered love. Self-centered love is I'll love you conditionally. I'll love you to get what I want. That's not a god. The Bible says a man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's an unconditional, no demands, no conditions, no manipulation, no control. It's an unconditional love for your wife. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Paul's talking about here. So it's not, agape is not necessarily exclusive to God. Not at all. It is manifested supremely and perfectly by God. Right but it is, you and I are called upon to manifest that same love. That's exactly right. So, as a matter of fact, I would say, Joel, if you want to be very blunt about it, it is impossible for you and me to exercise this apart from the Holy Spirit empowering us to do so. I mean that. It is the highest calling for us, not only as men, but as Christians, it's the highest calling for us to live like this. And the more, and that's why I want to spend a lot of time on this chapter, the more we dig into this, the more you really come to understand, I can't do this apart from God. I, I can't. It's, we can't. When we look at those, those descriptive phrases in verses 4 through 7, you really get to, to, to see this is a supernatural call upon our lives. But it's also it's an also, it's absolutely thrilling way to, to think about life. Jim, did you ever your hand up?
2: I was going to ask. I mean, a marriage relationship is possible to have both eros and
0: agape love simultaneously. Absolutely. Actually, even even phileo. I mean, like a friendship where you know your wife isn't only your your lover, your soulmate, and all. It's also your friend. You share everything with her. She's a very important part of you. I think all three are wrapped around a fulfilling, purposeful marriage. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, there are about four bunny trails that could go down there, but I think we're not going to go down any of them. All right, so far, and it's easy to do that, you know, just go down bunny trails, but are you, you you see what... There are two things I want you to see here. One, I want you to see the structure of this in Corinthians. It's sandwiched between a, a, an elaborate and robust discussion of the spiritual gifts and a very significant and often forgotten Discussion on what worship should look like. Not in terms of what you do, but whatever you do, it should be done with order. God is not the author of confusion, Paul says, and chaos. That's not God. But in between those two, is, is sandwiched this very important quality of life called love. Coincidental? Paul just said, Oh, I, think we're, I'm, I feel poetic. I'll just write this. And it is poetic. It's, it's masterfully done. No, it is the key... To the larger issue that he's really discussing here. And I think it's the key for you and me. <clears throat> this is an area of my life where I am constantly, constantly, constantly coming up short. And I talk to the Lord a lot about this. Because I don't want to do this. There are many people in many situations I don't want to exercise love. Yeah. I just don't want to do it.
1: You don't want to love them.
0: I don't. <laughs> I don't. I mean I don't <laughs> want to do it. You well, not not only that. I mean, it's but it's it's our human nature is whether we even think about it or not. We're always setting conditions because you're this way or you've done this. I'm not going to love you. That's conditional, and that is contrary to agape. Now, the other the the thing that is often well, then I'm just a milk toast and let people. That is not what this means. We let people walk all over you and dunno that's not what it means. But it's your attitude and approach and thought processes which then results in actions. Because sometimes a very loving thing to do to someone is to call them to a level of accountability to which you are holding them responsible. I don't know if I'm losing I'm going to illustrate some of that as we get into it. But I'm trying to make sure you understand how this big picture of this part of 1 Corinthians fits together. And then secondly, that that this is the term we're talking about. And honestly, and I don't, you know, you're not Greek scholars. I'm not even a Greek scholar. But it's one of those words you really should know that word. It's just one of those Greek terms. You just should be familiar with that. That should be part of your vocabulary. And even sometimes when you're reading a New Testament, you see the word love. Hmm. Which word for love is that? Because you can't tell in English. But when you when you find out, and it's always easy to find that out, but when you find out, you say, oh my goodness, now I have a deeper understanding of what the author is really saying there.
1: Jim, without this relationship to God through Christ, it's, not impo- it's, it's impossible, isn't it, to to have the kind of love that,
0: Absolutely. Right. Absolutely.
1: I mean, we can we can just you know, absolutely can be strong. We can show our wife love and, and, and think about. oh, I got. I should be doing that. Okay, I'm going to do that. I mean, the will of the flesh, but the s- sustainability and the naturalness of that isn't going to mm-hmm. really develop, is it? And, uh, I, don't it is. I don't believe it is. Unless we have that relationship that we keep getting, because we need to get filled too, mm-hmm. don't we? I mean, without love from God. To us, I mean, we have to sense <clears throat> that and realize that, I guess, is a fact.
0: Yeah, I was, I'm wasn't sure what you meant by being filled, and in, in, that can mean a lot of different uh, things. But I'm, I'm also, Fred, trying to stay away from this as some mystical experience. Yeah. It's a, it, it, it isn't a mystical experience, it is a reality. That God is calling us I mean it's an objective, tactile reality that should characterize our life. But as and that's what this chapter I think will do, as we come to understand what this really entails, then we come to the conclusion I cannot do this without God. I, I cannot love this way consistently, whether it's you know your wife or or your children, I mean or or in any kind of a relationship to which God is calling you. And it's it's an important one for us to realize that this is a quality of life that you cannot fake. You cannot fake this. Oh, maybe a couple minutes you can, but a consistent day-in, day-out lifestyle. Of this kind You can't fake this. And if you look at the top of that handout I gave you, it, it, there are, there's a front and back to it. It would be the, the front that has page 40 on it love is that indispensable proof of authentic Christianity various spiritual gifts as important and valuable as they are can all be duplicated by the pagan world and I I'd just like you to think of if you go back and go through some of those some of those qualities and giftedness you can the, the, the world, those outside of Christ can demonstrate extraordinarily administrative skills. Almost all worldviews have some records and some evidences of healings. Multiple worldviews have speaking in tongues. Christianity is not the only one that claims speaking in tongues. I mean, you, can go, you, can go, you can down through them. But the quality of love, as it is described in this chapter... It cannot be. Love loves even the unloving, not based on anything of the other person. Remember the words of Jesus in John 13. They will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, you could It's a first class condition in Greek. You could actually translate it this way. Since you love one another, or as you love one another, they will know you're my disciples. Isn't that that fascinating? Not as you serve, not as you go out and work hard, but as you love one another. It's that indistinguishable mark of authentic Christianity.
1: And uh, my wife shared with me when we were discussing this, and she said the love was like the love that Jesus had for the people that crucified him in that he prayed for them and said forgive them father for they know not what they do absolutely and it absolutely. made me think of other times that i had been wrong you know i have a recent one i felt where i felt wrong and uh, and i i can look at it that way you know a sick person just needs to be prayed for you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think maybe i'm starting to figure out what that love meant.
0: Well, you remember, as we've talked before many times in this class, our growth and walk with the Lord is a process. Yes. Our salvation's an event, but our walk is a process. And you and I will be in that woody till we die. I want to remind you one other thing. Uh, in the second century, in the second, the second century, a Roman historian was writing a history of Rome. And by that time, the Christian movement, if you want to call it the Christian church, was pretty much throughout the Mediterranean world. Now, that, it doesn't mean that the vast majority of people in the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, in the early second century are christian That's not true. <clears throat> but it was pretty pervasive. And he was writing, and this is the phrase he used, they are turning the world upside down. And then a couple of paragraphs later, he made this comment. I'm astonished At how they love one another. Those two are connected. They're turning the world upside down. By military conquest? No, they didn't have armies. By shrewd rulers who, in calculating moves, test the will of their own? No, they they didn't have diplomats and rulers. They were loving each other. And they would, uh, there are just multiple accounts of of martyrs when they're arrested and, you know, uh, are. You know, there 's so many ways in which they could have been killed, but strapped to a, a, a bunch of sticks and uh, to be burned uh, they 're they're singing to the Lord and, and you know Lord, forgive them, they really don 't understand as they kill me i 'm going to heaven and there's one guy 's name is Polycarp. he uh, he 's over in what would be today eastern Turkey, but or western Turkey, but he, he's he 's he's about, about to be burned at the stake, and this Roman commander, this Roman official. Says to him, do you realize what I can do? All I have to do is throw this torch on that. And this fire will consume you. And he looks at this guy and says, if you don't trust Jesus Christ, there is a greater fire awaiting you. Can you imagine saying that to somebody when you're about to die? But that courage and unbelievable uh, boldness. And he said, and then his next sentence was, I, I can show you. I can show you the love of my Savior. All you have to do is let me talk about him. And the guy said, what do you mean? He starts telling them the gospel. Now, there's no evidence the guy ever trusted Christ. But the flames are licking all around him. And Polycarp's talking about Jesus to this guy. Man, that's an absolutely supernatural way to respond to things. It's just, it's just, and it was all over the Roman Empire. In the sec- by the 2nd century. And those kinds, they just couldn't figure them out. Because what they were doing and how they were living just didn't make sense to this power-hungry, wealthy colossus called the Roman Empire. But in 200 years, it'll be gone. Well, 250 years. It'll be gone. And is the church still around? Yeah. Jesus said, Matthew sixteen, "I will build my church," and that's the thing. um, Well, anyway, let's look at chapter thirteen. I'd like you to, and I. This is from some written work I've done, so that's what I've copied for you there. But I want to take you back to the very end of of verse thirty-one of chapter twelve, because remember, in the original letter, there weren't chapters, and verse we added that to make it easier to study. Verse 31, this is how I translate that. But you earnestly desire or seek the greater, more prominent gifts. I will show you a more excellent way. That gets to the heart of their desire, excuse me, their understanding of spirituality prominence, greatness, and they're seeking that. Paul says, to counter that, I want to show you a more excellent way. And in that little handout that I gave you, he wants to redirect their emphasis from the prominent to love. He wants to to intentionally Redirect what they think is important and their passion and desire for that to what is far more important for them to seek. Nowhere in the New Testament are we instructed to seek specific gifts. Do you understand that sentence? Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed. <laughs> I'll use an example because that's what sometimes you, you need to seek the gift of speaking in tongues. There is nowhere in the New Testament validates that kind of statement. Again, I'm not saying that speaking in tongues isn't an important gift, however you understand that. But there's nowhere in the New Testament you will find uh, an admonition or a command. Seek seek this spiritual gift. Seek to do this. You won't find it. And so it seems that Paul is, is correcting, their, trying to correct their entire attitude, their entire direction and sense of what spirituality really is. It isn't about the prominent. What you consider to be greater gift. It's about love. I want to show you a more excellent, that word excellent in Greek is "areté." It, it. We would translate that if we were to really flesh it out. I want to show you the most virtuous pursuit there is for you as a believer. The word excellent in Greek is associated with virtue, which is a very, it's a wonderful word. We don't talk much about virtue anymore in the 21st century. I want to show you a way that is filled with virtue. It's love. And he goes in verse 1 through 3, if I use the word hyperbolic, do you know what I mean by that? It's language of exaggeration. Okay, you're using, you and I, we talk like that you know, all the time in, in various uh, statements and phrases, especially children do, but adults do too. You, you're using exaggerated language to make a point. That's what Paul's doing here. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clang cymbal. And the word tongues there, glosa, he is talking about if I could speak many, many, many languages, indeed if i could even speak angels language there is no evidence the angels have a special language that that isn't his point if i could even do something supernatural if jim beck's an angel and i could he and i could talk and i could speak his language that's that's a silly way to talk about the paul said, even if i could do that and i didn't have love and what's a noisy gong You you know what a gong is, don't you? You strike it. I mean, I don't consider that music. I guess somehow it could be, but it's just just noise or a clanging cymbal. Both of those, I think think a gong is in a symphony orchestra, but I know cymbal is. But alone, just alone and nothing else is... It's just noise. That's kind of what he's saying. It's just noise. If I have a gift of prophecy, I'm in verse 2, and know all mysteries... And all knowledge, and if I have all faith, you see what he's done. There's a the whole bunch of gifts right there. Whole bunch of gifts, some of which we had seen in chapter twelve. So, it's, and I have faith—the faith that can even move mountains. That's kind of what Jesus said. You know, faith that can move mountains. But I do not have love. I'm nothing. Because without love, you are exercising every one of those gifts for your own sake. You're exercising every one of those gifts for the sake of the prominence of yourself. Verse 3, an even more extraordinary event or possibility, if I give all my possessions, all of them, to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, martyrdom, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Good, virtuous acts, without love, can only be understood as self-elevating. It's nothing, meaningless. Without love, his point in these three verses, and I, I wrote that there in your handout. The point is, if gifts are just exercised without love, they're meaningless. And ultimately, they're all self-elevating. Which is an abuse of the gift.
1: Is it like works?
0: In a way, yeah. 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 You need to have them because of... Yeah, abuse. well, and the and yes. And, and it, it, there's... But it's it's ultimately, he's he's turning it so that, because you have to go back to verse 7 of chapter 12, gifts are given for the sake of the good of everybody. And the only way that can occur is if it's done in love. So if you're not doing it in love, then why are you doing it? For self-elevating reasons, ultimately. To merit someone else's favor, perhaps even God's favor. All right, so he's... He's made it clear what he's doing. All right, Paul, what kind of love are you talking about here? And we have, and in, in, it's especially in verses 4 through 7, and then verse 8 introduces one additional thought, but I've separated that out. I'd like to, I'm trying to miss it. I don't know if we're going to get through all of this because there's, there's quite a, a a lot in each one of these terms. Verses 4 through 7 are really poetic. I'm not necessarily sure we can say it's poetry. It's poetic. It certainly is a literary masterpiece. It's often something my daughter, uh, when she was married, she she wanted this. Um, you, 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 have you ever heard it put to music? She wanted that song sung. You know, put to music, and there are so many different. It's, you know, it's on all kinds of cards. It's you, know, you can get it framed. You know, it's all those wonderful ways in which. But in most cases, all those, it's beautiful. It's oh, it's wonderful. I love that. But very rarely, have you ever sat down and really taken it apart? What really does this mean? It sounds so good. So I want to try to put it together. Uh, or take it apart, excuse me, and then put it back together. Love. I'm going to read the entire passage, uh, these four uh, verses, and then we'll go back and look at each term. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then that final quality is love never fails. But I'd I'd like to separate that out because of what he does in verses 8 through 12. So I mean, it is. It's poetic. It's 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 literary it, 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 beauty in 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 a, in a wondrous way. So let's let's look at each one of these. I, I haven't given you the Greek term or anything, but I, I tried to flesh out what's in back of it. <clears throat> Love is patient. Now, in the United States of America, we define patience as waiting at a red light. Or waiting in line at the grocery store. That's how we define patience. And that's okay, because that tests us. It really does. But patient, as this Greek term is listed here, is enduring suffering without a desire for retaliation. It's the, Woody used that in effect when he was sharing his conversation he and his wife had. What Jesus on the cross he says to the Father, Father, you know, forgive them for what they're doing. They don't know what they are doing. That is a biblical manifestation of loving patience. If I would, this is a, this is an absolutely blasphemous thought, but I hope it's okay that I put it this way. If I were on the cross, I'd say, Father, hurl your lightning bolts at these people, create them as smoldering cinders. That's how I would respond, just intuitively. You know, how do you apply? a phrase like love is patience with the understanding of what that term means today in 2014. I don't think any of you around this room are facing martyrdom. It's your work. At least not yet. The United States government isn't throwing us into jail or you know, putting us up in front of a firing squad because of who we are as as Christians. So how would you and I said what I want you to do, I want you to be very uncomfortable with this because i 'm very uncomfortable. This is really hard. so what would you say? what would we how could we talk about applying love is patient
2: Suffering. i mean the, the definition of suffering can be mm-hmm. I mean as extreme as being burned at the stake I suppose, mm-hmm. but it can also be. I don't know, maybe caring for a spouse who has Alzheimer's disease Mm. and all of the personal anxiety Mm. and...
0: That sometimes can create bitterness.
2: More Uh, often than not. It really can. Data says 40% Mm -hmm. of the people resent their Mm. circumstance. Mm. I mean, mean, it's not just having an enemy assaulting you. I mean, enduring with patient suffering can be very personal and even inside a love relationship
0: well you're you're ringing up a a really quite penetrating example because with the growth of of our population as it gets older and older older and the demographics are changing and alzheimer's dementia those kinds of things are often becoming a part of a of a relationship as we're getting older there is there is a, a very, very significant amount of studies been done a resentment and bitterness toward the spouse can really set in. I don't want to care for you. And I you know, almost a, a visceral hatred sometimes. That would fit here.
2: Sure. I, mean, I mean, for a lot of spouses, it ruins their life, it ruins their career, it mm-hmm. ruins their plans, mm-hmm. ruins their dreams. It, it,
0: it ruins it, it, it is, it's a part of that response to that situation. And patient love is accepting that's my calling right now. I love you, I care for you, and regardless of what happens, I will continue to do that. Without even an emotional retaliation or shutting down I mean all those things and you really have to you have to let this really sink in. This is wow. How about some other illustrations of how we would apply this? Wait with your children. You have, Say it again please. With your
1: children. Mm-hmm. If you have mm-hmm. a child that is on a wrong path. Mm-hmm. Rebellious
0: teenagers, all of that. Mm-hmm. Just to
1: continue to show up mm-hmm. and try and help them get on the right path mm-hmm. again. And it's, you know, it can definitely um, stress you and, and suffer, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: How do you continue to love with patience when it appears that it's being taken?
0: Well, I think that's, uh, that's where I'm going to insert some other biblical words here. Uh, I see these in the Proverbs, for example. That's where wisdom and discernment has to come into that. Because I, I said something to this effect uh, 10, 15 minutes ago however we 're going to understand all of these words and we put them together into a pretty extensive definition of love this doesn 't equal being a milk toast now, do you know what I mean by that is that a it doesn 't mean we were to be a doormat it doesn 't mean that uh, okay, that means I just allow people to take advantage of me whether it 's a rebellious child or I mean whatever the multiple circumstances no i th- there I think that 's where and this is, it's hard to know exactly how to specifically say, here are the three bullets you always use. I don't think we can do that. But you can get a sense after a while, I am being manipulated. They're taking advantage, you know, let's see what would be a scenario. You know, I have a 30, I I have a 30-year-old son, but he doesn't do this. He's a very responsible guy, but... 30-year-old, he's unmarried, he's living at home, uh, he's not paying rent, he's just really taking advantage of them, my goodness. So what does patient love look like there? Keep paying all his bills? That's, that's not love. I mean, love is a responsible way. And, and, you know, Dobson and others have often talked of tough love. Because love, ha- loving somebody is also helping to responsibly grow and develop them if they're under your responsibility as a child or whatever. And I think then you have to say, okay, Lord, when, when do I make that decision that I'm going to cut some of these ties? You know, you've heard the saying, well, how does a mother eagle get her, her, her little, what are they call it, eaglets? Or what do they call yeah. them? How do they get them to fly? They kick them out of the nest. And you're either going to fly, you're going to drop the earth like a bomb. It's your choice. Which one do you? want? I'm not sure that's exactly how Mother Eagle looks, but it's kind of that way. And many, many are, you know, will say that's kind of. And so parenting is that slowly, gradually teaching them responsibility, helping them to move from dependence on you to dependence on that's. And it. So I don't know how to answer that question. You have to be really sensitive to that. Because the one thing we know about people to whom we are expressing love, if uh, they're pretty rebellious people, they're going to say, hey, I've got a good thing going here. They really take advantage of it. Um, there are many, 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 many examples of that, and that's a difficult thing to do. A loving thing to do sometimes could be, please get out of my house. I love you. I care for you. Oh, well, I was just going to make a comment.
2: I think about that is not necessarily suffering, but maybe you know, loving when when the other party maybe maybe the word isn't doesn't, but maybe can't love you back. Mm. I think of, I've got a brother who's got a daughter that's mm. 22 and has had some genetic issues mm. at birth, and you know, doesn't speak. eats through a feeding tube and and so forth. And, oh my goodness! And the care that they. That they provide for this girl, and, and, and you know, from a purely selfish standpoint, she's a huge burden. Absolutely. And it's, it's it's hard to, from an outsider's view, to see how you know she loves them back, so to mm-hmm. speak. But their love is mm-hmm. unyielding and unending. And mm-hmm. In my mind, you know,
0: that definitely a to a fault. It definitely fits and here. So,
2: I, I that's that's kind of the image and the, the relationship that I have in my mind when I.
0: Good. Good. That is an excellent example. It really is. Another way to think about this, and this is when, when we're all done, it may even take us all next hour, uh, next Wednesday to finish all this, but one of the key terms when we put all this together is agape love is unconditional love. When we're all done trying to summarize all of these things, that's really what it is. There are no conditions. Now, and remember, when we say unconditional, it gets back to somewhat Daryl's question, it's unconditional in terms of how I am responding to you. I'm not setting conditions of me loving you. If you remain rebellious for the rest of your life, I will still unconditionally love you. But part of my response, I mean, you know, using that example, parent-child, part of my responsibility is to, to help you Become the kind of mature adult God wants you to be. So my loving responsibility is to feed you responsibility and help you to grow with us. If you choose not to do it, I mean, it's just there's this there's this nuance between how we how we look at, think about, regard an individual, and sometimes our actions. Our actions can be extremely loving. If we're calling somebody to responsibility, and then the agony, because I don't know how you were when you, I, you, know a couple of you still have smaller children, but I mean, when I was raising the kids, there were many, many times where I, I, you know, I loved them so much, I just wanted to do everything for them. I wanted to make it as easy for them as possible. And my, my wife, who was far better at this than I was, she would always say, "Honey, don't do that." Don't do that for them. Don't don't take that away from them. And you know it. And you know as always is the case with a wife. She was so right. And it was just let they've got to work through this. They've got to own this. They've got to be responsible. They have to learn to. So often that's love. And again, I, I, I the. The words that are in the in the book of Proverbs, particularly, must dovetail with how we exercise this love, agape love. Wisdom, discernment, discretion, understanding. And that's part of being a student. And as you know, expressions of love and responsible love is going to be different for each one of your children. Isn't that true? Each one of your employees. Because everybody is different. And the leader is going to find out where those strengths and weaknesses are.
2: Is the love that's in view here, is it always or exclusively, personally or individually directed, me to you? Or is there a collective sense of this as well? Um, I love people, I'm patient with people. Or...
0: I think it is both. It's both, isn't just... Individual, personal, one-on-one. And again, Jim, I think it—it it, uh, again putting putting those Old Testament words, it's what discern in in an enormously say, important, well thought through discernment and wisdom. How do I apply that to a group like the people that work for me? You know, what does this kind of love? It's going to be different than the love toward your wife, obviously, but what does that look like? And I think that's, uh, that's, that's that dimension that we often call servant leadership that is, is a part of that. Servant leadership is what this looks like in managing and leading and directing groups of people. You know as well as I do, people are much more, much more willing to buy in when they think you really care for them, they're involved, they're important to you, then you're just the narcissistic autocrat like Vladimir Putin, yeah. and he is a narcissistic autocrat. That's a very loving statement. It's just, a, it's just an object, that's who he is. And you know, it's, he's, he's demonstrating that again and again and again. And then you know people will follow someone like that out of fear. He's a bully. He gets what he wants by bullying and fear. That's not what a good leader does. Because as soon as he loses his clout, what will happen? Everybody will abandon him. Everybody will abandon him, right? History is filled with that. When a man, man's leader has all the power, everybody follows him out of fear. The moment he loses his force, he's done. Everybody will abandon him Hillary and go to somebody else. <laughs>
1: Hillary compared his recent actions to Hitler's. And that kind of fits with what you're talking about, you know.
0: Yeah, when it, when over, you want me to agree with Hillary Clinton? Is that what you want me <laughs> to? Just kidding, Woody. That's, that's some valid comparison. I would actually, I would compare him uh, to Joseph Stalin as a Russian. Putin is really interesting man. He is he is a devout Russian Orthodox. He is not an atheist, and he has resurrected the power of the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia. And he has, he has redirected a lot of their resources to all of their holdings in Jerusalem, which is really a fascinating thing because the Russian Orthodox Church owns so much in Jerusalem. And it's just there's, there's so many historic connections there. The, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin is like an old Tsar. You know what a Tsar is? The old rulers of Russia. He's like an old Tsar. He's not the atheistic, he's a Tsar. He's That's what he's doing. He's the old Tsar of Russia model. And he's, he's really something else. Love is kind. If you look at your notes, it's the only time this term is found in the New Testament. It's the only time. So that makes it a little difficult for us to figure out all of the nuances. <clears throat> but it seems to involve how God responds when he's hurt. When God's When God's heart, you know, obviously these are figures of speech, but when God's heart is broken, how does he respond? With kindness. A kind care for the good of that person. Seeing it over a long period of time. Love, and I honestly think this is part of how we should view this, Love is that capacity to see someone in someone's actions over an entire span of time. When you and I, when you and I are dealing with we see we see that, we see that person, we see that instant only in that little tiny speck of space-time history. Instead of, they may not always be like this. My response is as a kind response, as a kind care is, to see the potential in that person, not just a momentary affront. Am I making sense? A parent must must do that. Because a four-year-old throwing a temper tantrum, you don't want them to do that when they're 20. So a kind, nurturing response. They've hurt you by that stupid thing they've done. But that kind, caring response is framed by the potential you see in that person over a vast amount of time in their life. certainly that's God's perspective. God doesn't see Jim Ackman just on, what is the date today? March the 5th, or whatever it is, 2014. He sees the whole big picture of my life kindness, as it is used here, is a dimension of, of grace. It really is. Which is always connected to love, too. Well, tomorrow, um, actually, not tomorrow, next Wednesday, we're going to pick up with Love is Not Jealous. There is a positive dimension to jealousy when God is the subject. There is neg- never, never, never a positive dimension to jealousy when a human being is the subject. We'll talk about that next week. I hope it's all right we're taking our time and going through this, this section. This is, uh, it is really important to really flesh out and try to hopefully put our arms around this, this really magnificent part of God's word. Lord, we're thankful for our um, study in the Book of Corinth, the First Corinthians, and I trust it's a blessing to these men. I trust it's uh, worthwhile for them to come to this session each Wednesday. I pray for them all the many, many burdens and responsibilities they have. Several around our table are still chil- have children that they're raising, they have all the daily stresses and and um, yet enormous joys of raising their kids, help them to apply even some of the things we're studying in this wonderful passage to their lives as dads. Uh, Most of us, if not every one of us around this table, has a wife. We're married. To understand what agape love looks like in that relationship. It's to unconditionally love our wives. It's to uh, not manipulate and control them in a selfish, self-centered way. We are to give ourselves to them in, in an unconditional way. It's a remarkable call upon our lives as men. Many have leadership responsibilities in various teams, in their businesses, or whatever their specifics might be. This kind of love applies to that. Obviously not at the same dimension as our kids or our, our spouses, but loving in this dimension is a part of servant leadership. It's a part of how we see it served by leading, and lead by serving. Help to teach us what that specifically means in those areas of our life. And in general, Lord, it's an important part of who we are as Christians. It impacted uh, the ancient world. Rome was baffled by what they saw among these young early Christians. It changed the world and it actually continues to change the world. So I pray for each one of us. May we um, be willing to allow you to develop and mature us in this area of our lives. For that is one of those transformational types of qualities that you are developing in our life. Help us to, uh, by intentional acts of our will, to allow you to do that. So bless these dear men. Give them your energy and enablement. And as we try to pray each time we're together, Lord, help us all to represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next Wednesday.